and welcome to a special festive episode of the Eastern Front. My name is Dalbo Rohaj, and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by my friends Giselle Donnelly. I also work at AEI and Yulia Zoja with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown and George Washington University. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace and security that have erupted along the line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. Our special guest today is Lydia Tomkiv, a senior reporter with the Financial Times. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Lydia, our listeners will certainly be familiar with the carol of the bells. What they might not be familiar with is the fact that we owe this carol to a Ukrainian composer, uh, Mikwa Leontovich, and we also owe it to a Ukrainian choir who, who brought it to the United States and to the Western world more broadly in the early 1920s under fairly dramatic circumstances. You wrote the story up a few years ago for the Slate magazine, and we'll include the link in the in the show notes. I wonder if you could sort of, you know, run us very briefly through through the contours of this of this story before we sort of delve into 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 particulars. Yeah, well, thanks for having me back. And um, unfortunately, I know this is maybe a festive episode, but this is a story full of political tumult and murder and oppression and nationalism and a beautiful haunting song and melody. Um, So what Americans hear every holiday season and across the world now, Carol of the Bells, you hear it in movies, car commercials, it's been used and licensed in so many different things dates back to an ancient Ukrainian type of music. They're called Shchidryovka. And in pre-Christian times, Ukrainians would welcome the start of the new year, the start of spring, and they'd sing these songs around March. And there were hundreds of them around different topics, birds, bees, celebrating lots of different elements of nature. Um, so these were very commonly sung. And so Mykola Leontovich, who you mentioned, um, was a Ukrainian composer. He was born into a family of priests, um, himself went to a seminary, but then um, embarked on a musical career. Really interesting one that took him to Moscow and St. Petersburg and Kiev. And he likely heard a version of a Shtedryoka from the region of southwestern Ukraine he was from, Podilia. And he spent several years um, orchestrating and composing it and turned it into what we now have as Carol of the Bells. So he writes it in 1916 and sends it to a conductor in Kiev who performs it with his choir. That conductor was Oleksandr Koshit. And a few years after this performance in Kiev, the choir goes on a tour um, across Europe, a tour that later takes them across America, across Latin America. They actually play in Mexico, Canada, Brazil, Argentina, Uruguay, and even Cuba. And the song spreads. It, it becomes one of their hits of their program. And that is how it comes onto the world stage. Maybe if you could tell us a little bit about Leontovich himself. Uh, so, so obviously, to, to a Western audience, he might not be quite as well known as some other Ukrainian composers, say Lysenko or Silvestrov. You know, you, you said he composed this in, in 1916, just the middle of the First World War, just a year before the, the Bolshevik Revolution. And, and he was killed a few years later. Uh, could, could you maybe sort of fo- focus on, on, on those last couple of years of his life and it seems to be provide a sort of insight in into you know how how turbulent life was like for for ukrainians in that period and, and how you know how everything was up in the air 
Yeah, and Leontovich's life stretches through really just some of the most tumultuous periods in history. He's born in 1877, um, and besides being a composer, he was also a choral conductor and a teacher. He actually did the music for the first Ukrainian language liturgy in 1919, too. And besides Shedrik, um, that he is most well known for, he composed over 150 other works for choirs. A lot of it was based on Ukrainian folk music. And as you mentioned, really tragically, he he's murdered. He goes home to visit his father in January of 1921, right after sort of Ukrainian Orthodox Christmas, which is celebrated in early January. And he's at home in a village and there's a knock on a door and a man asks for shelter for the night. Um, you know, what they didn't know um, was that man was an agent of the Cheka precursor to the Bolshevik, um, you know, secret police that later evolves into the KGB. And he shoots Leontovich during the night. And Leontovich um, tragically dies, doesn't get to see his music spread around the world, what it becomes to so many people. And a lot of scholars in Ukraine really think this was a politically uh, motivated murder, most likely to do with Leontovich's roots um, with the autocephalous Orthodox Church. Um, and his role as a you know Ukrainian, somebody that was composing Ukrainian music based on folk music. So Leontovich really never gets to see what happens to what becomes his most famous work that people around the world know all about. I also want to ask you about how the tour itself that you mentioned resonated um, and how you think about their message as being also in a way political, um, because it was at a time when um, when Ukraine had just briefly gained independence. And uh, here in the United States, you mentioned that in, in your article, it was... Um, received in one way the music, but the message and the choir themselves um, were perhaps in a different way. I wonder if that resonates in any way to what we're looking at um, today, um, you thinking back um, at those times. And also, if you can tell us a little bit about what happened to the choir itself in that political context. Yeah, so the history of the choir is a really interesting one, and I think there's a lot of resonance in what's happening in Ukraine today, because this was sort of the big first modern example of cultural diplomacy from Ukraine. You know, the Romanov dynasty falls in 1917, and we have the first iteration of a modern Ukrainian uh, nation in 1918, the Ukrainian People's Republic. And one of the leaders of it, Simon Pitlura, he thinks a great way for Ukraine to get support of allies, of other European powers, is through soft power, through cultural diplomacy. So he has the idea of sending a great choir, a great composer on tour to promote Ukraine as its own culture, its own language, its own people. So that is when Oleksandr Koshets, who first performed the Shedrik arrangement of Mikhail Leontovich, goes on tour with a choir. And they end up traveling to 10 European countries um, over three years, and they are really well received. We see this in clippings from newspaper archives. People love the music. They love Shedrik. They're really applauded through this tour. And for the choir as well, they're going out with, you know, sort of the symbols of the Ukrainian state, the, the trident, the trizub. They are singing what is today's Ukrainian national anthem. So they're very much promoting themselves as a Ukrainian choir representing Ukraine when they go on this tour. The Ukrainian People's Republic does fall within a few years. So by the time the choir comes to the United States on tour in 1922, they do their North American premiere at Carnegie Hall in New York City. They are under a much more commercial flavor. There is um, actually a Russian-born impresario, Max Rabinoff, who brings them on tour. 
And this is sort of the point where I think you're referencing the real confusion that starts happening in the press in the United States. There are headlines saying that a choir of Russian singers are here on tour. And the Ukrainian choir spends a lot of time in interviews correcting this, that they are not Russian, that they are Ukrainian. And there's just a lot of this conflation that happens. So they spend time correcting it and really trying to tell the story of Ukraine and where their music is from. It is such... Uh, a window through which to look at current events. Um, there are now... Exactly 100 years later, right? Yeah. Um, there are choirs now, and there have been some great, highly circulated videos of people in the train station in New York, you know, all the classic venues for, for holiday music. But you wonder whether, uh, you know, how... An American audience uh, that's used to hearing this in malls uh, before hearing other, I won't say seasonal favorites, because uh, these things get played to death. But whether this will become, again, a window for Americans and maybe Westerners more broadly to really come to grips with the autonomous Ukrainian story. And I wonder if I could um, maybe just come back to one sort of historical point that, that that you sort of alluded to, which was the existence of of this independent Ukrainian National Republic during those four years, which I'm not even sure all of our listeners are perfectly sort of familiar with. So, so maybe if you could just like tell us a little bit about the history of 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 that state and its sort of prospects. I like, guess there a sort of counterfactual history in which it could have survived that sort of turmoil of the Bolshevik revolution, like what, what his leadership looked like, what, what was sort of the politics of the moment in, in Ukraine at that time? Yeah, I mean, this is an incredibly difficult moment and the, the Bolsheviks take cave, right? So kind of, again, this resonance of 100 years later, um, you know, we see the same thing, an assault on cave, and this time it doesn't work, right? Um, and it is a tumultuous period. And I think sending the choir out was part of trying to gain support from European allies that doesn't really end up happening, right? Um, it is a short-lived republic. It falls by 1921. And um, this then interwar period between World War One and World War II, um, I always quote Sidhi Plochi, the Harvard historian here, because I think he says it really best that Ukrainians emerge as the largest nation in Europe with an unresolved national question in this period. So what ends up happening is that four European states um, divide the territories of what is today Ukraine. So the majority of which is Bolshevik Russia, then Poland, Romania, and Czechoslovakia. So you know, we don't see the modern Ukrainian state, those borders emerge until 1991. But I think, you know, important to really underscore and highlight here that the Ukrainian identity, people have felt themselves to be Ukrainian for a very long time. We have this choir over 100 years ago going on tour, trying to promote exactly that. I wonder, because it resonates so much, and because we're thrilled to have you back here, um, as you graciously mentioned at the beginning, if you can um, build a bridge to to looking back over the last few 10 months, um, almost a year. We have very much focused within this podcast on the battlefield itself and the implications, political, you know, measures, sanctions, um, how can they work and how Ukraine has evolved despite the assault. But but when you were here, you talked a lot about culture and about how Ukrainian culture is having a moment um, despite the war and maybe even facilitated in a 
dramatic way by the war. So looking back now from here, the United States, how do you see Ukrainian social and cultural presence um, having evolved um, or having transformed over the last 10 months in, in this space on the eastern coast? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of resonance here. We're seeing, you know, 100 years later, another wave of Ukrainian cultural diplomacy. We've seen a lot of the country's biggest, you know, pop stars, rap stars come on tour to the U.S. performing across Europe. We've seen other orchestras. I was in Warsaw in April and the Ukrainian Symphony Orchestra was there to a sold out crowd, you know, playing a lot of Ukrainian composers that I think a lot of Western audiences and others maybe were not as familiar with. A lot of these composers maybe weren't played as commonly in sort of the canon of music um, that's common. And so I think there has been kind of an awakening and people discovering a lot of Ukrainian artists. I also think, you know, over the 10 months, there's been a bit of a rewriting with some artists that maybe for a long time were labeled as Russian or Soviet, people saying, no, actually, you know, they were from Ukraine and in their memoirs, they describe themselves as Ukrainian and this needs to be updated and, and corrected. So there's been a lot of that. And I think, you know, there's also been this resonance of one of the most popular songs that has emerged since um, Russia's full-scale invasion is Oyu Luzi Chadvona Kolina, which translates as um, kind of like, oh, in the Valley of the Red Verbridium, it's a plant. And that song dates back to World War I, was a Ukrainian song from that era. And one of the biggest pop artists, um, lead musician of the band Boombox, um, he very famously went out into the streets in Kiev and sang an a cappella version of this that went viral um, on Instagram and a lot of other sites in the early days of the war. And he himself actually was hit with shrapnel in the face um, you know, when he was fighting. He's coming on tour to the U.S. in March, right? Um, and this song then gets Pink Floyd involved. They do a modern version of it. So I think we've really seen sort of Ukrainians using every aspect, you know, from asking for military aid to soft power diplomacy to try and get their message out there. And, you know, I think a lot of it is also like Ukrainians really like to sing. Whenever I'm, you know, visiting family or I'm back in Ukraine, we just start singing at some point over dinner. Um, so I think that is just sort of part of the cultural heritage and, and just people like singing there. So I think that's also kind of a natural, natural thing for a lot of folks. We would also be sort of negligent if we didn't mention that President Zelensky has just been named uh, Time's Man of the Year, which, you know, if nothing else is a cultural moment <clears throat> or an American cultural moment, at least. You know, you kind of wonder whether this is kind of a um, vicarious sentiment that, you know, makes up for some some divisions and deficiencies that we have here at home. It is almost as though uh, Ukraine has become our better angels, or you know, we have this idea of a nation struggling for its liberty and for it to defend itself. Um, it's just, um, it's, it's uplifting in a way, not only in and of itself, uh, but for the possibilities that it suggests for American and Western culture more broadly. That's not really a question, <laughs> but... Uh... Yeah, I think it's taken a very long time, too, for, you know, the story of a lot of things from Ukraine to come to the fore. I started researching 
Carol of the Bells and going into the archives um, in Ukraine in 2017. Um, And I found a wealth of documents and photographs when the choir was traveling across Europe. And at that same period, my piece came out in 2019. Um, Brilliant researcher in Cave started putting together a lot of this as well. Her name is Tina Perisonko. She wrote kind of a whole book chronicling this. And she was telling me recently, I was chatting with her in between a window when she had electricity and internet in cave that the reason a lot of people are finding out about this now is that research has really grown around all of these topics in recent years because it wasn't something people were allowed to really look at during the Soviet period, right? Because this story was tied to Ukrainian independence, Ukrainian identity. So it was something those archives, she said, she didn't have access to, um, you know, much earlier. And what else is very kind of sad and tragic um, is that the choir, when they come to North America, the members that end up finishing the tour in 1924, they went to 17 countries in all, over 600 concerts. The people who remain in North America Mm -hmm. at the end of it, none of them go back home. And I found the memoir of one of the members of the choir. Her name was Sofia Hauska. And I want to read this to you because it's just um, really struck me as a powerful passage and just sort of a, a tragic end to them bringing a beautiful song to the world. She writes, we were all tired of the applause of our audiences. We were irritable and homesick. Unfortunately, we could not return home. There was no home for us. We were forced to remain abroad if we valued our lives. The young Ukrainian Republic was crushed by the Soviet military might. The Ukrainian patriots were ruthlessly suppressed and murdered. Well, so so much for my ambition to have a festive. Yes. Yeah, so Merry Christmas to everyone. <laughs> well, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about, um, I mean, the, the, the person who converted uh, Shedrig into what is now the Carol of the Bells, who also has a Ukrainian connection. Of sorts. So he apparently was in the audience at Carnegie Hall when, when, when the choir performed and you know took the idea and ran with it. So who was he? Yeah, I'll pivot from you know dark, dark murder and that that quote to telling you about Peter Woloski, who's a very interesting um, man and he was a composer and a really renowned American um, choral conductor too. He did a lot in New York City public schools, he did a lot on radio with NBC and um, Arturo Toscanini. His um, Um, version of Battle Hymn of the Republic um, is one of the most well-known ones we have. Um, And legends have long swirled about whether or not Peter Woloski was in the audience at Carnegie Hall in 1922. Um, Through archival digging later, he actually wrote to the Ukrainian Weekly, which is a diaspora English language newspaper here in the U.S., and he mentions that he heard the choir perform, but he doesn't say when. And um, Woloski himself was born in New Jersey in Passaic, and he went to the Russian Cathedral Choir School in New York. His family was from a border region. They left when it was Austro-Hungarian Empire, but it's today northeastern Slovakia. And I tracked down the priest at the church they went to in New Jersey, and he told me that it's likely Woloski's family was actually um, ethnically Rusin, so that's another group within Ukrainian. So he may have spoken Russian at home, going to the cathedral school, probably Russian. Um, and I managed to track down Woloski's niece. And she told me in their childhood, they would hear bells ringing at midnight in churches. And when he heard Shedrik, he heard the ding dong, ding dong within the bells. And he kind of had a common problem, which was he had to fill out a high school music program. And he knew his kids wouldn't sing in Ukrainian. So he decides to compose the English lyrics that we all know so well today. Um, and he does that. And 
a lot of people start writing to him asking for the notes. It's broadcast. And we have an almost near miss in history here because the first music salesman who looks at it actually rejects it, doesn't want to purchase it. And Wolowski's pretty like downtrodden. He writes to the Ukrainian Weekly about this, um, that, you know, in comes a couple weeks later, a salesperson from Carl Fisher wants to buy something. And Wolowski's like, well, you know, this other thing, it was rejected. I, I don't know how you're going to feel about it. Take a look. Of course, the rest is history. Carl Fisher buys it. It's still, you know, a very successful piece of music today. And that's when, you know, in 1936, it really takes off and becomes known as Carol of the Bells um, to American audiences and people all over the world. That's quite a Christmas present for them then. Um, I, uh, at the cost of um, risking too much of making it a dark episode when it should be a festive, I think we should also, you know, I asked you to look back also to look towards. Um, we're looking at uh, uh, what we already know. It's becoming a cliche, a very harsh winter. Um, we're looking at more risks of more shortages um, and uh, in a very dramatic situation for um, for civil society overall in Ukraine and just ev everyday life in terms of how to make it. And we haven't seen what we expected, and that would be the Ukrainians fleeing, right? Um, another wave of refugees that was so much discussed as a possibility, as a possible weapon um, of Putin's. He has not succeeded in doing that, but it's also going to be a difficult Christmas. So you looking at, um, at Ukraine um, into the next few months, what do you think or what is to you the most important thing that Ukrainians are um, are looking towards um, into the next year on having in mind the, the negative sides of it? It's also, you know, the end of the year, it's spring coming. So what are then you think um, the hopes of Ukrainians into Christmas and the next year? Yeah, I mean, I think this is going to be a very difficult winter. Um, and just recently, actually, at the start of December, uh, there was a concert again at Carnegie Hall celebrating 100 years of when the Ukrainian choir first came. And at that concert, they brought a choir named Shedrik. It's a children's choir from Cave. They brought 54 kids over to perform. And it was a beautiful performance. I was there, interviewed the kids, and a majority of them have been practicing in basements in Kiev, um, air raid sirens going off, no electricity, taking their cell phones down. There's videos on the internet of them, you know, singing mm -hmm. just the most sort of angelic sounding music in a dark basement with cell phone lights. And that's the reality. And then they came and performed on one of the most famous stages in the world. And now a majority of them are going back to that environment. And it's going to be a really, really difficult month. Um, next couple of months, uh, really, um, depending on, you know, what the weather looks like and, and infrastructure and, you know, but talking to these kids, some of whom were as young as 10 years old, they just love music and singing. And it's tragic that they've almost gotten, I don't want to say used to, but that's the reality of how some of them are living now. Um, and I think they were just happy here that people were paying attention. I think one of you mentioned the viral video of them singing in Grand Central Station, um, performing Shedrik. Um, so they wanted to get that message out and they wanted to perform 
to for Americans when they came here and to have people know that it's a Ukrainian song um, and melody. And that was very much what they were telling me in, in interviews. And some of them are, you know, living in other European countries now and, and going back there for the winter. So this, you know, choir of 54 kids is kind of, you know, a small microcosm of what's happened to a lot of people um, in Ukraine right now. Um, and some of them were actually returning to Ukraine for the first time on the way back from New York City as well, um, wanting to go back home after having been abroad for a few months. So I think it's, you know, very particular to each family and people's circumstances, but a lot of people, even some of the people when I was reporting in Poland in April, um, I've kept in touch with have since decided they wanted to return to Ukraine. They missed being at home. They wanted to be close, you know, in a lot of cases, husbands, you know, people, men 18 to 60, not able to leave. They wanted to go back home. Um, some of them returned to places that were a bit safer in, you know, Western parts of the country if they had family elsewhere. But I think, you know, there's been a huge desire for folks the longer this goes on um, to be close to those that they love. Lydia, I wonder if I could prevail upon you to sort of give us a, a tour of the cultural battlefield uh, over the last six or eight months or so. You know, there's now kind of a struggle over the church, you know, sort of make the break with the Russian church more decisive. But if there are other things that have occurred to you that since we last spoke, uh, this would be a good time to bring us and our audience up to speed. I think a thing I've noticed a lot too, um, and we saw the first iteration of this really in 2014 with Maidan and then Crimea and the start of the war in Donbass. At that point, there were quite a few people I'd meet and interview who were making the switch into speaking 100% Ukrainian. Because there are quite a few people in Kiev that speak a mix. It even has its own word called, um, sorry, Surzik, which is the mixing of Russian and Ukrainian. And um since February and the full-scale invasion, I've met and spoken to a lot of people who are making that final switch, where they are speaking Ukrainian at home. A lot of people, you know, have sort of apologized to me in interviews because, like, oh, did I? That sorry, I mixed in a Russian word, and I, I'm really trying, trying to make that switch now. Um, and that has been really noticeable to me. Um, and you know, that's difficult when you're interviewing somebody that's in their 50s or 60s, and they grew up um, in a place where you know speaking Russian got you ahead, and that was how you did business to make that switch. Which um, isn't easy. I, you know, actually had somebody in New York City walk up to me, heard me speaking Ukrainian with a friend, and we had a long conversation. The guy was from Kharkiv in eastern Ukraine, and at the end of it, he goes, "I'm so sorry for my Ukrainian." I was like, "You just spoke perfect Ukrainian to me. I don't know what you're apologizing um, for." Uh, but you know, I think there is sort of sometimes folks are a little, you know, very cognizant of that, or just wanting to kind of get it right and and, and making that switch. That has been um, sort of a noticeable dynamic and. It did start in 2014 to a certain extent, but I think now it's really um, come to a whole whole nother level, really. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, not not about the cultural battlefield, but but about the battlefield battlefield in 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 Ukraine. So we've seen, I mean, the war evolve again into a new phase in which Russians are putting more pressure on the on the on the Donbas region and. Uh, where, in spite of uh, you know these, these these war crimes that are being being committed by, by by the Russians against the civilian population, I mean the West is not stepping up dramatically in its assistance to to to, to Ukraine, which has been a sort of source of frustration to us on this podcast. Uh, it, it strikes me that you know we have the tools 
that the Ukrainians could use to actually d- decide the the war in in a, in a fairly sort of short short order if only we didn't hold those tools back uh is is that frustration with with you know the west holding back especially military assistance palpable among ukrainians you talk to is it growing um what 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 what's 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 your sense of the of the debate on on and maybe to add to that also if you can reflect a little bit on i don't know how to call it the intersection between regular people and um and the pleas for um for more military aid it was a few days ago um when at a political event about ukraine here in washington dc I met Miss Ukraine and it occurred to me after her weighing into the conversation several times that she must be one of the few ever miss miss of a country that is not asking for world peace or she is she is asking for that too but the the way there she has a different methodology than is typical in beauty contests it, it is it is pretty striking how she and others like her are trying to make the argument that to um to get peace we must get military aid so she has become well versed in high mars and patriot systems um and that is pretty striking um in so if you can maybe offer us some thoughts in terms of your interactions with Ukrainians in that sphere as well. Yeah, I mean I think she's a good example in that everybody I talk to there they know the acronyms for every piece of equipment they would like the country to receive. You you know it's taken on this kind of really interesting, you know, 2022 modern day, you know, these memes and TikTok videos about this. And, you know, there is some levity. You have Ukrainian soldiers posting videos recently. Um, uh, the, the, the Pikachu dance was uh, uh, one of the best pieces of propaganda ever. Yeah. Or recently the Netflix series Wednesday, the crazy dance she does in it. There have been some soldiers posting videos um, to that Lady Gaga song doing it as well. Um, but, you know, I think a lot of Ukrainians I talk to, too, they they know there is no kind of way forward unless they keep fighting. Right. Um, and that, I think, is uh, kind of a, a common feeling with a lot of people um, I speak to. And the things they've been asking for have definitely changed. I mean, I remember, I think, back when I was speaking to you in, in March or April, there were still a lot of um, pleas then for, you know, closing the sky. NATO closed the sky. There were a lot of. Ukrainian memes and, and social media messages um, around that. And I think that then sort of evolved when folks realized that was not going to happen to asking for more particular, you know, HIMARS and, and other types of weapons um, systems. Um, and I think also just, you know, as you said, with Miss Ukraine, it's just now this consistent sort of, I think, back and forth of people, pop stars, anybody, athletes especially as well, coming and speaking to anybody that will listen, continuing to get the message um, out there that, you know, a lot of people, I don't think Miss Ukraine probably ever thought she'd be, you know, probably saying those those kinds of things. And same with probably some of the, you know, pop stars and, and people um, who are also coming on tour and continuing to try and, you know, interview with folks. I think the needs have also changed um, a bit. I think um, I've heard a lot more recently about folks wanting like armored vehicles, um, just, you know, cars and things getting hit on front lines. Um, and I'm sure we'll, you know, that'll also change with the winter conditions as well. 
um, it'll, you know, be kind of an evolving list of things people, you know, ask for and when they come. Mind detectors and and things like that. But but I guess if if you're through their eyes looking back, you mentioned the change in the requests, but if you are to evaluate how the situation on the battlefield exactly looks like um, 10 months, almost 11 months into the war, what's um, what's your take and what is theirs? Yeah, I mean, I don't, when I last spoke to you, there hadn't been yet sort of these big victories, um, pushbacks. So, you know, I think everyone has been watching that very closely. Um, the moment Ukrainian uh, soldiers entered Kherson, I remember waking up in New York City and just my social media was flooded. The videos of the soldiers entering, I mean, I think everybody was posting that. It was just a real moment, I think, for a lot of people. Um that when that had happened, that was something folks were waiting for, for, for a very long time. Um, at the same time, you know, the costs of this are incredibly high. Um, you know, lots of people also in my social media feeds, you know, posting photos of cemeteries and going to funerals. And um, that is part of this daily rhythm of life that's really sad to, to see. It is something of a, a miracle that Ukraine has come through this. And it's completely reasonable to believe that the coming year will be a a further triumph and maybe a decisive one. Delibor, bring us back to the holiday season. I mean, to me, it's it's partly a matter of of, the policy choices that we make in the West. And 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 like if 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 I sort of sound agitated or or upset, it's, it's it's particularly because I I can't understand why we are holding so much back and why we are not giving Ukrainians what they need to finish the job and while they are bleeding they are the ones dying every day and and they still face an onslaught and and and, and a sort of army which is for all the sort of losses and mistakes and Russian mismanagement like it's still a very powerful and dangerous dangerous enemy and it's it's almost you know the sort of sense that we can sort of fine-tune this conflict in a way that I don't know, like in order to prevent Russian escalation, like it, it strikes me as, as totally misguided uh, an, an approach. Like, and, and I think you, Giselle, uh, on, on, on a, on a no, I feel like I feel like you're repeating my my punchlines back to me here. On, 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 on an email thread that AI, you you sort of said that you know the best one of you know like it's, it's both the sort of you know best thing and the worst thing about the Biden presidency is approach to Ukraine, and and I I, th- I think I think I very much sort of shared that that outlook. Lydia, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I think there were some uplifting and some sad points in this conversation, but that was bound to happen on the very, very Ukrainian in that way. Yeah, and hopefully, you know, when people hear this song when they're out in malls, they'll maybe think about it a little differently this year and and know the history um, of it, which is just you know a beautiful, interesting, and really crazy story. Here, here. That should be our resolution. And they will conclude with uh, Slava Ukraini. Aaron <laughs> Slava from Delborohach and Giselle Donnelly and Yulia Zoja. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges that have erupted along the line from the Baltic to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AI.org. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag Eastern Front Pod, written as one word. Uh, don't forget to sign up 
for the Eastern Front's newsletter through the link including in the, included in the show notes to receive more content from the Eastern Front. Once again, many thanks to Lydia Tomke for joining us. Happy holidays. Thank you.